Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. And in addition to the fifth Sunday after Easter, commonly called Rogation Sunday, it is, of course, Mother's Day, as I mentioned. And, of course, we all want to honor our mothers, both biological and otherwise, for all that they do and all that they sacrifice. And so traditionally, on Mother's Day, families honor their mothers by doing something for them. Maybe make a card, write them a nice note, grill for them, give them a phone call, take them out to a nice dinner, make them or buy them presents. And I think most of us would have a fundamental problem with just saying, hey, mom, happy Mother's Day, and just moving on. Actions tend to speak louder than words. And those of us with children know the difference between hearing and speaking and doing. We sometimes tell our boys, hey, go clean up the mess that you've made in the living room. And one of them, I'm not going to tell you which one, but it's the older one. Well, (laughs) we'll often say, okay, as he sits on the couch continuing to read his book or watch his TV show without ever actually getting up to clean. In fact, it actually reminds me of the parable Jesus tells in Matthew 21, where a father has two sons and he instructs them to go work in the vineyard. And he goes to the first and says, hey, I need you to go do this. And the son says, I won't do it. But then on further reflection, he goes out, he does the work his dad asked him to. He goes to the second son. He says, son, I need you to go in the vineyard. And the son says, I will. But he never does it. And so Jesus asks, well, which one does the will of the father? And of course, the answer is the one who actually went in the field. We need more than empty words. We need to actually do things. Our propers today from Ezekiel and James demonstrate a a fairly basic but nevertheless extremely important point, which is that faith is never purely passive. Faith is not a mental act by which we assent to certain propositional truths. Faith is primarily defined and identified by a complete and total trust in God that gives him allegiance with our whole being, every part of who we are. And I think this naturally builds off what Matt Gray told us last week in his sermon. Because last week, Matt reminded us of the importance of being good listeners, listening to God through scripture, through liturgy and sacrament, and through the communion of saints. And last week's reading, you may remember that St. James told us to receive the engrafted word, which is able to save our souls. Agricultural lesson time. When you graft a branch onto a tree, what happens? You cut a little in the tree, you cut a little in the branch, you put them together and you wait. But what happens? Over time, they begin to grow together, right? The branch becomes part of the tree. The health of the tree is determined by the health of the branch and the health of the branch is determined by the health of the tree. So what this means is that if we as Christians receive that engrafted word that Matt was speaking about last week, which is Jesus Christ, he becomes part of us and we become part of him. It's why St. Paul uses that metaphor of the body. You are the body of Christ. And so any faith that we have must be expressed not only in our opinions, not only in our doctrinal convictions, but ultimately in what we do by our actions. Our Old Testament reading this morning is from the book of Ezekiel the prophet. And Ezekiel is preoccupied with a covenant that God is going to make with his people. He calls it a covenant of peace. 
Now, I think it's important to say a word about covenants because I don't think that as modern Americans, we fully appreciate what a covenant is. Because for modern Americans, we think in terms of contract agreements. Everything is a contract agreement. And some of those contracts are stronger than others, right? I mean, no-fault divorce, for example, made marriage a contract that could be severed at any point by either party for any reason. Perhaps this comes maybe with a financial punishment. We were recently having a dispute with our landlord about the, the terms of our contract. But inherent in the idea of a contract is that we can get out of it. There's an escape clause somewhere. Covenants might be similar, but they were taken much more seriously in the ancient world. We find an example of God and Abraham making a covenant in Genesis 15. It's a solemn ceremony. And what they did is they took a couple pairs of birds and they cut them in half and they laid them out. And the two parties who were entering into the covenant together would walk through the birds. And the point was to say, if I break my end of the covenant, let what happened to these birds happen to me. It was serious. And every covenant has two parts. There's a promise and an obligation. A promise and an obligation. Ezekiel, or pretty much all of the Ezekiel reading, is detailing the series of promises that would accompany this covenant of peace that God would make with his people. He anticipates that there would be safety in the land, that the land would flourish and be fruitful. They would have fruitful yields from their crops and from the trees, and also that they would be delivered from oppression, so that they will be no more consumed with hunger in the land, neither bear shame of the heathen, anymore. These actions towards the people serve as a perpetual reminder to them that the house of Israel are my people, God says, and ye my flock, the flock of my pasture are men, and I am your God. I think this verse has some resonance with the Venite, which we just sung a few minutes ago, right? We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand, which is actually a quote from the Psalms too. Still, wrapped up in this promise, God being their God, of us being the sheep of his pasture, is still an obligation. To be the flock or sheep of God requires what from us? Obedience. To hear his voice and to follow it. Following our good shepherd. And I think this leads us to that exhortation that opens today's epistle from James. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. We cannot be a people who merely hear the gospel. Instead, we must be a people who receive the gospel, that engrafted word, and do the gospel. To illustrate, James offers us a portrait of a man who sees his face in a mirror and then walks away instantly forgetting what he looks like. If you look at yourself first only to forget, well, it's really futility. What was the point of looking in the first place? It's futile to be a hearer instead of a doer. You can listen to all the sermons you want. You can read all the devotional books you want. You can come to church as much as you can and still not put your faith into practice. In that case, why even come at all? Why put the work in to read or to listen if it's not going to be put into practice? Even more profoundly, it's important to remember that if you have been baptized, you are a Christian You have been regenerated by the Holy Ghost. You have been raised to a new life. But by failing or neglecting to put that faith into practice, it's not just ignoring our baptisms, it's explicitly rejecting what it is we promised at them. 
The hearer stands for those who do not allow themselves to be changed by the grace that's given to them. They're one of the bad soils in that great parable Jesus tells of the parable of the sower. In response to their cognitive dissonance, they either rationalize or bury their heads in the sand by ignoring their glaring inconsistency. So to encourage us towards the good, James gives us another portrait, the portrait of a doer. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. And for James, this works itself out on a practical level in two ways. If you're truly practicing your religion, he says, then it means caring for others, particularly those on the margins. Because when the world treats them as disposable, the Christian insists on the inherent dignity and acts accordingly. Paired with that, the true practice of religion involves remaining unspotted from the world. That is a kind of single-minded devotion that doesn't allow external forces to distract us from our calling to holiness. So I mentioned that today is Rogation Sunday, and you might be thinking, what the heck does that even mean? Rogation comes from the Latin word rogare, which means to ask. It's typical that on this day, the parish would make a procession to all the boundaries of the property of the parish, and also that they would engage in litanies, asking God to bless the earth and the crops. For us, though, I think more pertinently, it's an opportunity to ask for God's word to be planted in us, that we would be the fruitful soil that his word would be engrafted into us. And I think it's that holy inspiration that our collect mentions this morning, that we may think those things that are good and by thy merciful guiding perform the same. Our goal is to be unified in our desires and unified in our actions, to have that word that's been engrafted into us that's able to save our souls. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, amen.